This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 4, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I know it's been a long time, but I just got one word. Ramadan. Okay, two words. Vacation. Uh, Ramad- between Ramadan and vacation, and uh, it's kind of hard to really put anything together. But we're going to continue. We're going to continue our series on Islam in West Africa. In the last episode, we talked about the empire of Ghana, a little bit about Gao and slavery. In this episode, we're going to talk about the empire of Mali and two of its most famous rulers, Sundiata and Mansa Musa. You're going to probably learn a lot more than you probably ever thought you'd know about these two guys. So stay tuned until the end of the show, please. There will be some insights I'm going to talk about after the show's over, as well as a special announcement. And so with that... Let's get into the show. Season 4, Episode 4, Sundiata and Mansa Musa. Sumanguru and the Soso. Last week we finished off with discussing the Empire of Ghana and we mentioned how it had lost its gold and salt mines and slavery was its main source of revenue, and the vassals had broken off. And now this mysterious person named Sumanguru was coming for them. Before we get into the details of Sumanguru's conquest, let's talk a little bit about the blacksmiths of this part of Africa, of West Africa. The blacksmiths held a special place in much of West African society. They were seen like as magicians in a way, magicians or sorcerers of sorts, because they literally brought metal out of the ground and could fashion it into all sorts of different weapons. And the blacksmiths, they were very secretive with their craft, and they held these things close to them, and they maintained a tight fraternity among themselves. So in many respects, the African blacksmiths were equivalent in some ways to the European Freemasons. Now back to Sumanguru. By the time he became the leader of the Soso, Ghana, which was mostly Muslim by now, but still very weak, and the Soso were still animist. And we mentioned how animism was the primary form of traditional African religions. And animism essentially believed that all items contained a spirit. And so the Soso were primarily um Animus. They had not converted to Islam yet, though in today's world, right now, most Soso, most Africans who are part of the Soso ethnic group are Muslim now. Now, Sumanguru, he was determined to take as much land from the weakening Ghana Empire as he could. And even though Sumanguru was an animist, He didn't really care too much for Islam one way or the other, but he 
had a nephew who was actually Muslim, and his nephew was also one of his primary generals. His nephew was named Fakoli Kamora, and Fakoli Kamora will come into play later on in the story. But for now, Sumanguru, who was leading the Soso, who were mostly animists, were going to war against the Empire of Ghana, which was mostly Muslim. And Sumanguru was receiving support from the blacksmiths of the area because Sumanguru himself was the son of a blacksmith. And so the blacksmiths were able able to supply Sumanguru with weapons and material support. And so before long, the lands under the Soso control had gone from a single village to now include almost half of the former Ghana Empire. And even Ghana itself was now uh, facing pressure because the Soso had attacked them and Ghana had capitulated and had agreed to pay tribute to so to the Soso people and to Sumanguru. So now the former master, Ghana, was now a vassal to its former vassal, uh, the Soso. But despite these military successes, everything wasn't going quite well with the Soso kingdom. Sumanguru was despised and hated by most of the people he conquered. He was a very cruel man by all accounts, and his armies killed indiscriminately, and he had also killed several leading Muslim families within the uh, Ghana Empire. And this angered the Arab and Berber kingdoms of North Africa, and they didn't want to do business with this, what they considered, pagan dictator who was killing all of these Muslims. And so they stopped doing business with the Soso kingdom and that form of revenue, that sort of revenue, began to dry up. And we mentioned how the primary source of revenue for the empire of Ghana during its heyday was taxes coming from the caravans going back and forth between sub-Saharan Africa and North Africa. So now with the Arab kingdoms, the Arab and Berber kingdoms, not wanting to do business with Sumanguru, that source of revenue was gone. So now Sumanguru has this huge kingdom to run, but he doesn't have any money. And so he pretty much does the only thing that he knows how to do. He raises taxes on the people who are already paying him lots of taxes. And then he goes out in search of more lands to conquer. Now that brings us to the Malinke people. The Soso people and the Soninke people, the Soninke were the primary ethnic group of Ghana. Both of these groups were branches of the larger Mandi ethnic group. Another branch within the Mandi ethnic group and one of the largest branches of the Mandi ethnic ethnic group were the Malinke. According to Malinke oral history, they were descended from Bilal ibn Rabah, which who was one of the companions of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, peace be upon him, and he was also the Prophet's muadhin or the person who called to prayer. Once again, going according to oral history, 
the Malinke people broke up into 12 different clans or hunter guilds. And these 12 hunter guilds, they used to fight each other, but they eventually came together and decided that they needed to work together. And their kings, the kings of the individual clans, they formed a governing body called the Grand Council. And this Grand Council of Kings, they would choose one of their own to be the overall leader. And this person had the title of Mansa. As for religion, up until the 11th century, the Malinke people mostly practice animism or some form of traditional African religion. But during the reign of one of their kings named Mansa Barmadena, they were going through a serious drought. And a, a visiting diplomat from the Almoravid dynasty, the Almoravids were the Moroccan kingdom we spoke about in the last episode, the ambassador encouraged Mansa Barmadena to accept, to accept Islam. And he convinced him to accept Islam and then pray for an end to the drought. And so the African king, he he did that and he prayed to Allah for relief from the drought. And sure enough, the drought ended. And soon other members of the Grand Council, remember the Grand Council were the kings of the Malinke clans that came together and worked together for the betterment of all of the Malinke people. Soon other members of the Grand Council followed suit and before long, most of the Malinke people had accepted Islam. But during this period, Islam was still fairly new to everybody there, and it was not yet an established part of their society. So it wasn't as strict or as formal as it would later become. That won't happen for a few more centuries. Allah. But this brings us to the epic of Sundiata. There's always that question about whether a historical story like this that borders on fantasy and sometimes crosses the line into fantasy. There's always that question about whether the story is real and whether the person discussed actually existed. Except for the prevalence of Sundiata's story throughout, throughout West Africa, there's no proof whether he existed or not. But the empire of Mali did exist. There's no doubt about that one. And it had to have been founded by someone. And like as not, we might as well accept the idea that Sundiata was a real person Perhaps there's a lot of fairy tale around him. Perhaps there is a lot of fantasy around him. But he was a real person and he did establish the empire of Mali. So that's the way we're going to address his story. We're going to accept the fact that it was that he was a real person and that much of the story around him may have been made up, but he did exist. And we're going to try to get the history of Sundiata's life and his exploits as best as we can from the existing stories, which is, once again, mostly oral history. So now we're in the early 13th century, the early 1200s, and the Kita clan of the Malinke people, 
The Kita clan, they have held the title of Mansa for almost 300 years. They have pretty much established a dynasty as the Mansa or the king of kings uh, for the Malinke people. Around this time, Sumanguru of the Soso, he's busy gobbling up the remnants of the Ghana Empire. And in the land that became Mali, the Malinke people, a man named Fata Kung Makan, or Fata the Handsome, he was the ruling Mansa of the Malinke people. He was the, from the Kita clan, and he was the king of kings for the Malinke people. By this time, Islam had spread in Mali, but it was still a fairly a weak part of their life, wasn't a, a primary part of their life yet. So Fata Kung Makan, he was a Muslim, but he most likely was not a seriously practicing Muslim, however. Fatah Kung, he already had three wives and 14 children at the beginning of our story, but his soothsayers, his fortune tellers, they advise him, they tell him to marry one more time, at least marry one more time. And this new wife, they tell him, this new wife will not be that beautiful. In fact, she's going to be rather hideous. But despite her plain looks, she was going to bear Fata Kung a son who would be like the Alexander of Africa. And sure enough, one day, two hunters, two Malinke hunters, they present Fata Kung with a woman that they had captured from a witch. And this woman was named Sogolon, and she was indeed rather homely looking. But remembering the prophecy, Fata Kung, he decided to marry her anyway. And within a few years, Sogolon gave birth to first a girl and then a boy. And the boy they named Sokolong Diata Kita, meaning the hungering lion or the hungry lion. But everyone called him by the shortened form of his name, Sundiata. Now, if Sundiata was supposed to be Africa's Alexander, it certainly didn't start out that way. For whatever reason, his body didn't develop properly, and he could not walk for the first seven years of his life. Now, perhaps this made him bitter, made him an angry person, but he had a hard time making friends during this time, and he was also known as a spiteful child. And Sundiata, in fact, he only had two real friends, his half-brother, Bukhari, and his father's griot, Balafaseki. Remember, a griot was something like a historian, a storyteller, a bit of a soothsayer, and a singer who worked in service for the king. And here we can begin to see the Islamic influence in the name of Sundiata's half-brother, Bukhari. Some people say that it was actually meant to be Abu Bakr. Others say it could have actually been Bukhari, named after the famous Hadith scholar. Allah knows best, but the point is that he did have a son, he did have a brother who had a name that was clearly Islamic. On top of that, on top of the fact that Sundiata could not walk for the first seven years of his life, he also was facing problems from one of his mother's co-wives, one of his father's other wives, a lady named Sasuma. And Sasuma treated Sundiata and his mother very, very badly. Sasuma, she took every opportunity available to make fun of either Sundiata's disability or his mother's looks. And 
All of this was perhaps propelled by the fact that Sasuma also had a son who was very close to Sundiata's age, and she really wanted her son to be the one to inherit from their father. Sundiata's father, Fatakong, he did what he could to protect Sundiata and his mother from uh, Sasuma's cruelty, but quite frankly, he had bigger issues to deal with at this time because Sumanguru and the Soso, they had forced Fatakung and the Malinke to pay tribute. They were already paying tribute, but now Sumanguru wanted them to pay even more. We mentioned how Sumanguru was facing economic pressures of his own because the Arab and Berber kingdoms refused to deal with him. And so his answer to this situation, his solution for this problem was to tax the people even more, and so he wanted to force the Malinke, led by Fatakung, to pay him even more taxes. So Fatakung, he didn't want to pay any more taxes, and he sent his griot, Balafaseki, who was one of Sundiata's closest friends, he sent his griot to Sumanguru to try to negotiate some sort of compromise. However, when Sumanguru heard Balafaseki's beautiful oratory, he decided to keep the griot for himself. He just pretty much kept uh, uh, Balafaseki on his own. And so now Sundiata had lost one of his only two friends. And by the way, Sumanguru still wanted his money. He still insisted on the higher tribute. Sundiata was about seven years old when his best friend, Balafaseki, was kidnapped by Sumanguru, and Sundiata was still crawling around in the dirt. The loss of his friend seemed to have sparked something inside of uh, young Sundiata, and he, just, he became determined to learn to walk. And so he talked one of his father's blacksmiths into making him a pair of leg braces. And then with the help of his brother Bukhari, and his sister, Kokolon, we didn't speak much of her, but she will come into play later on, and his mother, Sukulong, Sundiata eventually learned to walk. Now, once he learned to walk, everything changed for Sundiata. He was no longer bitter, and he started making friends with the other princes. He excelled at hunting, and remember, this was a society that was ruled by hunter guilds, so him being a great hunter, that made him a favored son. But all of Sundiata's successes didn't really change anything for Sasuma's hatred of him and his mother. Remember, Sasuma was one of Fatakung's other wives. If anything, uh, Sundiata's successes actually made her hate Sundiata and his mother even more. And she felt that they were even more of a threat because now Sundiata was a healthy boy and he could likely succeed his father. Everything came to a head basically when Fatakung died and it was time to choose a successor. When her husband died, Sasuma went to work. First, she sent a message to Sumanguru saying that if he supported her son's cause to become the ruler of the Malinke people, then she would make sure that the Malinke paid his increased tribute. And then she went to the Grand Council and she argued that her son, whose name, by the, by the way, was Tuman, she argued that her son should be named the Mansa, the King of Kings. There was already some confusion, it seems, as to which child uh, Sundiata or 
Tuman was born first and Sasuma, she was able to convince the Grand Council that her son was the rightful successor. Whatever she argued, the Grand Council agreed and they named Tuman as the king of the Malinke people. But even with all of this, Sasuma was not done just yet with her plotting. So she might have been afraid that Sundiata might one day challenge her son. And so she made arrangements for Sundiata to be killed. She visited nine different sorcerers and paid them to put a curse on Sundiata that would ultimately result in his death. On the same day that Sasuma went to the sorcerers to put that curse on Sundiata, Sundiata had gone hunting and when he returned, he shared his catch with the sorcerers. The sorcerers, they were touched by his generosity and they decided decided to spare his life. And they also told him about Sasuma's plan and they encouraged him and advised him to leave the area and leave the country and go settle somewhere else. Now, right here, we're going to divert just a little bit. This idea of a hero going into exile, this is a common Islamic idea. It all begins, one of the first and earliest stories was with Hajar, the slave wife of Prophet Ibrahim, alayhi salam, peace be upon him. In a story that is strikingly similar to Sundiata's story, Prophet Ibrahim, or Abraham in English, He had Hajar, his slave wife, and he also had a free wife named Sarah. Hajar had given birth to her son Ismail, or in English Ishmael. And some years after that, Sarah also gave birth to her son Ishak in Arabic, or Isaac in English. And jealousy and rivalry began to grow between the two. And so Sarah forced Hajar and her son Ismail to leave their home and wander the barren deserts of the Arabian Peninsula. Eventually, Hajar and her infant son, Ismail, they eventually settle in a valley called Bekka, and this would eventually become the city of Mecca. There's another example of this hero, this idea of a hero going into exile. Another example is with the story of Prophet Musa, or Moses in English. Before becoming a prophet, Moses lived in the Pharaoh's palace as an adopted son. As a young man, he witnessed an Egyptian slave driver whipping a Hebrew slave. And Moses, he in retaliation, he attacked the Egyptian so hard it killed him. And eventually, fearing for his life, Moses or Musa, he fled Egypt to the Sinai Peninsula, eventually Uh, mentoring under Prophet Shuaib and marrying one of his daughters. And perhaps the most iconic example of a hero going into exile is none other than Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, himself. After 13 years of persecution in Mecca and trying to preach to the people of Mecca about Islam, Prophet Muhammad and his small band of followers, they had to flee Mecca and take refuge in a small village named Yathrib. Yathrib was eventually renamed to be called the City of the Prophet or Madinatun Nabi in Arabic, but today everybody pretty much knows it as Medina. So now Sundiata is also getting a similar uh, suggestion. 
So heeding the sorcerer's advice, Sundiata and his mother, they flee Mali and they took refuge in various cities and, and small villages and kingdoms along the way. They basically were in exile for several years. But all the time that Sundiata was in exile, he put his time to good use. As Sundiata and his mother were wandering, staying in one village, in one kingdom, or one city after another, Sundiata, he made allies and friends all along the way. In the kingdom of Jadeba, he played the king in a game of Wadi. And Wadi is something like African chess. Sundiata won, and the king rewarded Sundiata with a sword. Then, in the village of Taban, he befriended the ruler there also. And the ruler pledged his blacksmiths to help Sundiata. And then, in the remnants of the empire of Ghana, Sundiata formed an alliance with the ruling Sise family there. And then, in Mima, the king, he grew so close to Sundiata that he took to calling him his son. And the king's warriors in this city called Mima, the king's warriors, they taught Sundiata how to fight and how to lead an army. So Sundiata was in exile for about seven years, at least seven years. And during this period, however, relations back in Mali between the um, the Mali, the Malians and Sumanguru, they had deteriorated very, very badly. Now, perhaps the ruler of Mali, who, by the way, was Sundiata's half brother, Tuman, perhaps he stopped paying the Sumanguru's tribute. Uh, perhaps Sumanguru raised the tribute again and Tuman refused to pay it. Whatever happened, Sumanguru invaded Mali, killed most of the princes, including Tuman, and was getting ready to take even more. So now Mali had no leader. Most of the ruling Kita family had been wiped out by Sumanguru, and so the Grand Council of Mali, they sent someone, they sent a delegation to find Sundiata. They found him in Mima, that last place where he was learning to be a, to lead an army. They found him there and begged him to return to lead his country against Sumanguru. But Sundiata's mother had fallen ill and he did not want to leave her side. But when she learned that her son was needed back home, she prayed for his success and she died a little bit after that. And so now Sundiata was free to return back home and recapture the very people who had forced him into exile. Sundiata returned to Mali and he was, he was ready to fight for his country and free his people. But the people of Mali, they weren't really in any sort of condition to help him. They had been broken and defeated by Sumanguru, and so Sundiata couldn't really depend on his own people to help fight for their own freedom. Sundiata had to rely on all of these allies and friends that he had made during his time in exile. So in the early stages of this war against Sumanguru, almost all of Sundiata's cavalry and infantry and archers and all, almost all of them were foreign soldiers. And so this began a long war between Sundiata and Sumanguru, and it lasted for several years according to the oral history, with neither side really gaining any sort of advantage over the other. But the tide began to turn in Sundiata's favor when Sumanguru fell victim to his own lusts on two different occasions. 
The first time came when Sumanguru betrayed his nephew and general, Fakoli Komoda. Remember, we mentioned him early on. He was one of the few Muslim people among the Soso people, but he was Sumanguru's nephew. He was also Sumanguru's best general. Fakoli Komoda had captured the city of Niani, which was which had once served as the capital of Mali. Fakoli Kamoto captured Niani for Sumanguru, and during this battle, Fakoli Kamoto killed the king of Niani and then married the king's wife. However, Sumanguru took a liking to the dead king's wife, and he forced her to marry him instead. This, of course, angered Fakoli Kamoto, who defected and took up arms and joined Sundiata's side. So the loss of Fakoli Kamoto was a major blow to Sumanguru, but it was nowhere near as bad as his next mistake. Next, Sundiata sent his sister named Kokolon to infiltrate Sumanguru's household and pose as a household worker and try to gather information about Sumanguru. Well, it turns out she did her job a little bit too well. She wound up seducing Sumanguru. We won't get into all the details. She seduced Sumanguru and learned all of his military and personal secrets and weaknesses. She passes on to Sundiata and he took full advantage of it. There were now a string of victories by Sundiata, one by one by one, one after the other. The towns and villages of Mali, they all fell before Sundiata's armies, and Sumanguru was just falling back and getting beaten back. As Sundiata's armies came through one of the towns or villages that he captured, the people found their courage and took up arms and joined Sundiata's side. And so Sundiata found his army. His army was now steadily growing while Sumanguru's army was steadily shrinking. And the final penultimate battle took place at Kirina in what is now modern-day western Mali, now, even though Sumanguru had been severely weakened by his own mistakes, the forces he had were still formidable, and he was able to put up a strong fight against Sundiata, and he was able to hold Sundiata at bay. But Sundiata leaned on these leadership skills that he had learned while in exile. And so Sundiata, he organized his hunters into a single fighting force. And the hunters were used to operating at night because they were hunters. They often went hunting at night. And so he sent his hunters to attack Sumanguru's forces in the dead of night. And this was the first time, at least in, in known history, that there was a night battle in Africa. Well, this ultimately broke Sumanguru and his army. Sumanguru was defeated and he ran off. Some say he was killed uh, some months later by a peasant. But whatever the case, he ran off and was never heard from again. And then Sundiata went off to subjugate the lands of the Soso. And he made the Soso people, who were the main people of Sumanguru, he made them pay a heavy tribute. He was very harsh on them. The men who survived, they were forced to join Sundiata's army as slave soldiers, and most of the women and children of the Soso were sold into slavery. And most importantly for Sundiata, at least, he was reunited with his old griot friend, Balafaseki, and 
Balafaseki immediately began composing songs for Sundiata. And so now, this brings us to Mali as an empire. So let's discuss Mali's administration and its expansion. Sundiata was crowned the ruler of or the Mansa of the Malinke people, and he was now the first emperor of Mali. And Mali was indeed now truly an empire. In, in addition to the original lands that belonged to the Malinke people, it also included the captured lands of the Soso, as well as the former lands of the Ghana Empire that the Soso had captured, which now passed on into Sundiata. Included with this were also the lands of the various allies that had helped Sundiata in this victory. The relationship between Mali and all of these new lands, it, it varied a lot, depending on the relationship before the war. Now, those lands that had allied with Sumangudu and the Soso and had fought against Sundiata, they were, they had little ind independence. Sumang uh, Sundiata considered them as vassals. He forced them to pay him tribute, and they were either ruled directly by Sundiata or by one of his royal slaves. However, those lands that had allied with Sundiata against Sumanguru, such as Ghana and Mima, these operated more or less like a federation. It's kind of like a loose federation where they're very independent. If they paid any sort of tribute, it was very low, or it was just perhaps nominal acknowledgement of Mali's and Sundiata's preeminence. And there were also challenges to Sundiata's authority. Uh, out west, in what we now know of as southern Senegal, the Jolof king, he refused to accept Sundiata's rule. He refused to acknowledge Sundiata as his uh, ruler, as his, as his emperor. The Jolof, by the way, they had previously been, been allied with Sumanguru. At first, Sundiata tried to go the peaceful route. He sent a delegation with some gold presents out to the, to the Jolof king, but the king refused to accept the gifts and he insulted Sundiata's representatives and Sundiata himself. And so Sundiata decided to get a little bit rougher. He sent one of his uh, best generals, a man named Tito Makan, with a large army. Tito Makan, he defeated the Jolof, he captured their land, but he wasn't done yet. So from southern Senegal, he then pushed north into the Gambia River region and conquered all of that as well. Wasn't done yet. He then pushed on into upper Senegal and then capt captured that as well. Wasn't done yet. He then pushed beyond the Senegal River into what is now modern-day Mauritania and captured land that had previously belonged to the Berbers and Arabs. He went as far north as the city of Balata, which is in modern-day eastern Mauritania. Really, the only thing that kept Tira Makan from going all the way to Morocco was the Sahara Desert. And there were other uprisings against Sundiata. Um, many of them came from within Mali. But one by one, Sundiata, he suppressed all of them. And he eventually forged this huge empire that covered most of modern day West Africa. And so eventually, Sundiata was the undisputed ruler of Mali. He generally made 
the high-ranking officials, his high-ranking generals, kings over the different lands that they conquered. But he was considered the king of kings, and he was given the ancient title of Mansa. Now, let's discuss Sundiata as a ruler and as a person. Sundiata, he did continue to use the Grand Council, but now that he was ruling over this huge empire, it had to be expanded much further than its original tribal origins. The council did not just include those original 12 kings. Now it also included generals, local chiefs, and a whole bunch of different princes and, and lesser kings as well. The Grand Council created a constitution that laid out the basic rules uh, for governing the empire. They also formalized the relationship between Mali and its different vassals, and they established rules and enforced laws to govern the people. And this brought peace and stability, and with peace and stability came prosperity. The Arab and Berber kings of North Africa, they were happy now to reestablish the trade routes and the gold and the salt uh, once again began flowing back and forth across the Sahara Desert from North Africa into sub-Saharan Africa. And while Sundiata, he may not have been the best Muslim in the world, he was still Muslim nonetheless, and that was enough for um, most of the Arab uh, and Berber kings. At this period, by the way, while we're talking about Islam, uh, Islam was still relatively new in sub-Saharan Africa. It had only been about 150 years since Ghana, the empire of Ghana, had become a Muslim state. And while Islam was an important factor in this early period of the Mali Empire, it was not the central force of power that it was going to become in later years. And so, Sundiata, he really flouted a lot of Islamic protocols. He was considered a generous man, and he didn't make elaborate displays of his wealth, but he was not what you would consider a devout or pious Muslim. Uh, he did not fast during Ramadan. In fact, he was known to be a bit of a glutton. He loved to eat. He almost certainly practiced witchcraft and sorcery, but by all accounts, Sundiata was known to be a fair and just ruler. And while he was often too quick to send his armies to deal with things, overall, he treated his subjects well, according to the oral history. The laws of Mali were very severe, uh, very, very severe, but Sundiata made sure that they were applied equally so nobles and royals wouldn't get off scot-free when the people were punished for things. He also instituted some sort of a, a sort of cultural exchange program. He would send his children to live in other kingdoms so they can learn the cultures and ways of these other kingdoms. And he would also accept the children of other monarchs into his home as well. He felt that if uh, children got to learn about other cultures, they will, they'll be less likely to fight each other when they got older. And he also adopted many of the sons of his generals. And this is going to lead to problems, as we'll talk about later on. But overall, it seemed as if Sundiata was at the very least a pretty fair and just ruler. That's probably the, the least we could say about him. Sundiata died in the year 1255, and he ruled Mali for about 25 years. And so now, let's discuss Mali after Sundiata. 
But after Sunniyata's death, there was a brief crisis of succession with uh, several different people claiming the throne. First, we have Sunniyata's generals. Many of them claimed that they should be the next Mansa. Now, remember, these generals were essentially kings over the lands that they conquered. Uh, many of these generals were supported by the hunter guilds. Uh, the hunter guilds who all had also supported Sunniyata, but the hunter guilds, they did not like the idea of a hereditary monarchy. They felt that the most qualified person should be the leader. And since Sunniyata's trusted military generals had proven their capabilities in the field, they certainly had the credibility to become the next Mansa. At least that's how the hunter guilds felt. But at the same time, as we mentioned before, Sundiata had many sons, both in and out of wedlock. And many of these sons also claimed the throne. And this was even further complicated by the fact that Sundiata adopted many of his general's sons. This uh, didn't make things any easier. Now, all of these uh, claimants to the throne, these hereditary claimants, these guys were backed by the Grand Council of Mali. The Grand Council, they believed the next Mansa, the next king, should be someone who was related to Sundiata. They believed it should be someone hereditary, and they also felt that they should be the one to make the final decision of who it should be. And also, as Islam was growing in Mali, the Grand Council also believed the the Mansa or the king's piety and character were important factors. And this conflict between the Hunter Guild and the Grand Council, this is going to continue to play out uh, for many years. We won't get into too many details about it, but it's just something to know about working in the background. Finally, uh, one of Sunniyata's sons, a man, uh, young man named Wali, he began to rise in favor. Wali was, uh, he was a much more devout person than his father was, and Ibn Khaldun had recorded that Wali had made Hajj, and by making Hajj, Hajj, this raised his status with both the hunter guilds and the Grand Council, and eventually Wali was crowned as Mansa. So Mansa Wali, as the new uh, emperor of Mali, he began focusing on improving Mali's trade and agri agriculture. He expanded the trade routes of Mali. He uh, he uh, improved the military, and he his he sent the military out to conquer more land. The military expanded Mali's borders, but also kept the uh, nation within the borders safe and secure. And with all of this safety and security, the men of Mali can now focus on agriculture. And as such, Mali's agriculture began to boom. So with Mali's agricultural output growing exponentially, it wasn't long before Mali had enough food not only to feed itself, but also to export to other lands. And this just added to Mali's wealth. It already had the gold and the salt, and so now could also bring in wealth by simply selling food. And this is pretty amazing considering the fact that most of the land that was part of the Mali Empire saw very little rain. So there were also men who didn't want to go to war, 
and they didn't want to be farmers. They wanted to do other things. They could These men could also pursue Islamic studies. And this led to a lot of men traveling to various parts of the Muslim world to become Islamic scholars. And when they returned to Mali, they brought back a deeper and stronger understanding of Islam. And this helped to to uh, solidify the hold that Islam had on on Mali and helped Islam begin to permeate and spread throughout the land. Mansa Wali, Sundiata's son, he died after about 15 years on the throne and he was followed by a bunch of ineffective and pretty unremarkable rulers. We'll go through them real quick, but we won't spend too much time on them. After Wali, there was a man named Wati, and he was uh, one of Sundiata's adopted sons. He was um, always fighting with the other people who claimed the, th- the throne against him, and so he only ruled for about four years. Um, during this time, he managed to pretty much spoil many of the gains that Sundiata and Wali had made. Wati was succeeded by somebody named Khalifa, another one of Sundiata's adopted sons. Khalifa was kind of crazy, and he only lasted for about a year. After Khalifa came a guy named Abu Bakr, who was the son of Sundiata's half-brother Bukhari. We mentioned him earlier. Abu Bakr ruled for about 10 years, and while he was stable, he didn't really do anything really remarkable. Abu Bakr was assassinated by a royal slave named Sakura, who usurped the throne. Neither the hunter guilds nor the Grand Council supported Sakura, but they were too busy fighting each other to really do anything about him. Sakura, despite the fact that he was a slave who usurped the throne, he was successful in some respects. He managed to expand the borders of Mali, and he also made Hajj in the year 1295. However, he he died on his return back from Hajj under mysterious circumstances. After Sakura... Sundiata's nephew named Kwu became the next Mansa, but he only ruled for about five years. The most significant thing about Kwu was that he thought he could cross the Atlantic Ocean. And so he commissioned several hundred ships to make this journey across the Atlantic Ocean, to leave from the western coast of Africa and cross the Atlantic Ocean and see what, what was on the other side. However, the um, the entire ship, the entire fleet was lost at sea and Kwu never returned. However, there are stories that one of these ships was found in Cuba or the 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 remains of one of these ships was found in Cuba. However, we're not really sure if that's true. So after Kwu, he went on the journey himself. Kwu was lost at sea along with his fleet. He was succeeded by his son, Muhammad. Mansa Muhammad he wanted to find his father. And so Mansa Muhammad chartered another 2,000 ships and left in search of his father, uh, Kwu, who was, of course, lost at sea. Mansa Muhammad appointed his cousin Musa to be his deputy while he was gone. Well, Mansa Muhammad, his fleet was also lost at sea, never to return. And ultimately, his uh, deputy, Musa, was crowned as the new ruler and accepted the title of Mansa. (laughs) 
this now brings us to the story of Mansa Musa. Mansa Musa is probably Mali's most popular ruler. He's even more popular than his great uncle Sundiata, who was the founder of the Mali Empire. And just like Sundiata and most of the other Mali emperors, Mansa Musa was also from the Kita clan. He came to power in 1307 and ruled until about 1332. We mentioned, of course, that the word Mansa means king. Many people think that Mansa is Mansa Musa's first name. This not is his title. His actual first name was Kankan. And Kankan means the son of Kanku, and Kanku was the name of his mother. So his full name was Mansa Kankan Musa Kita. But everyone pretty much is this Mansa Musa. Of course, Mansa Musa is most famous for his epic, and we do mean epic, Hajj pilgrimage that he took in the year 1324. Before we get into the details of the Hajj, let's discuss the motivation behind Mansa Musa's famous Hajj pilgrimage. Why did he make this pilgrimage? And why did he go to such a lens to make it uh, such a, remem- a memorable and epic Hajj pilgrimage. There are many reasons. First, there is speculation that Mansa Musa was seeking atonement for some crime he had committed in his past. And some people even believe that he may have been either directly or indirectly or accidentally responsible for the death of his mother. So he may have been he may have made Hajj in part to repent for that sin. Or maybe it was an accident, who knows, but maybe he just felt guilty about it. There's also, of course, the the obvious fact that in an empire where Islam was becoming more important, if he made Hajj, this would portray Mansa Musa as a righteous ruler. And this was something that he was very keen about, considering the fact that the Grand Council expected the ruler to be a righteous and pious Muslim. And then, of course, we also have to take into account the religious obligation of making Hajj. Uh, Mansa Musa, by all accounts, seemed to have been a very devout Muslim. And so this pilgrimage would have been one of his most important personal accomplishments just uh, as being a Muslim. But we also have to look at the possibility that Mansa Musa was hoping to spread his own influence and raise the stature of Mali among Muslim nations and show that Mali was an emerging power. But whatever his reasons for making Hajj, we know for certain that Mansa Musa, he put a lot of care and attention and preparation into this journey. Now, the Hajj trip, at least from Mali to Cairo, which was the final staging ground before going into the Arabian Peninsula, this would have taken eight months. Before he even departed on his journey, Mansa Musa sent 500 slaves to meet the Sultan of Cairo, the Sultan of Egypt. Each slave carried a golden staff, and altogether, these 500 golden staffs would have weighed nearly a ton. So before he even goes out of Mali, we're in the preliminaries, and he's already sending a ton of gold into Cairo. At this point in time, 
the uh, Egypt was ruled by the Mamluks. And so the sultan here would have been uh, a Mamluk king. Now, when he finally did leave, his caravan included 100 camels, each one of them carrying 300 pounds of gold. Altogether, when you do, do the math, altogether, that would have been almost 15 tons of gold. Now, in addition to, of course, the 100 camels carrying gold, he would, his caravan would have also included hundreds of camels carrying equipment and supplies. Now, there are different estimates about how many people actually accompanied Mansa Musa on this pilgrimage. The numbers range from as low as 20,000 to as high as 60,000. And most of, them, most of them would have been soldiers and slaves. But the fact that there were so many slaves in Mansa Musa's retinue, that's an indication that Mansa Musa had conquered a lot of the territory in his time. People didn't just become slaves by accident. People became slaves when their lands were conquered. Now, when Mansa Musa finally arrived in Cairo, it was an amazing spectacle. The historians write how people crowded in the streets to watch him and his caravan as they wound their way through the tight streets of Cairo. And there's a whole lot of talk about when Mansa Musa purchased something, he always paid for it in gold. When he came across a merchant who was selling something he liked, Mansa Musa would buy buy the entire stock out and he would often willingly overpay for it and he became basically this amazing spectacle in Egypt and the people had never seen something like this before. Now there was a very brief uh, diplomatic kerfuffle when Mansa Musa first arrived in Cairo. He was a guest once again of the Mamluk Sultan and to his surprise and probably to his embarrassment as well the Egyptian royal advisors suggested that Mansa Musa kneel down and kiss the ground before the sultan's feet. Uh, This must have been some sort of cultural thing that they were doing. This is not an Islamic practice. But Mansa Musa refused to do so. He his reasoning was that first of all I'm a king too. Secondly, my land is bigger than yours. The lands I control is more than yours. And third of all, I got more money than you. So Mansa Musa was not trying to kneel down before this king, this sultan of um, of Egypt. Ultimately, the two people met and they worked out some sort of compromise. Well, they just, they just treated each other as equals. But still, Mansa Musa and his caravan, they were just spending money and gold like crazy in Cairo. They spend so much money in Cairo that they altered the price of gold for several years in the future. In fact, 12 years later, 12 years after Mansa Musa's pilgrimage, the effects of his spending was still being felt in Egypt because he had spent so much gold there. He had single-handedly depressed the, the price of gold in Egypt. Not a lot of fuss is made about Mansa Musa's pilgrimage and all the gold he spent and the spectacle he made in Cairo. But there is also a darker, uh, not so pleasant side to his trip. Now, after his time in Cairo, um, Mansa Musa and his caravan, they then went on, crossed over into the Arabian Peninsula and headed south towards Mecca to perform the actual rites of the Hajj. The actual pilgrimage itself seemed to have gone pretty well. I'm not aware of any uh, bad things happening there, but it was on the return to Cairo that things started to go a little sideways. For some reason, 
Mansa Musa's caravan got separated from the guide that the sultan had provided for them. And the caravan got lost and wound up wandering through the desert for several days. Even though they were lost, the um, Mali, the Mali caravan, Mansa Musa's caravan, they knew to head west. And so they always head in the direction of the sunset, knowing that their land, Mali, was west of Mecca. But during this period of time, while they were lost in the desert, many of Mansa Musa's soldiers and slaves and his camels were were killed either by exposure either or from heat exhaustion or many of them were kidnapped and killed by local Bedouin tribes in the desert. Finally, Mansa Musa and his caravan, they, they make it back to Cairo, but Mansa Musa's problems weren't over just yet. During his previous time in Cairo, he has spent most of his gold and then he lost the remainder of it while he was lost in the desert. And so this time when Mansa Musa returned to Cairo, he was kind of broke and the people of Egypt were not so welcoming to him. In fact, Mansa Musa was so broke now when he returned to Cairo that he had to try to start borrowing things from the local Egyptians. And the Egyptian merchants, they took full advantage of it. They overpriced him and overcharged him for pretty much everything they could. But there wasn't much that Mansa Musa and his caravan could do because they were foreigners, they were in a desperate situation, and they were also ignorant of local customs and prices. Despite Mansa Musa's gener- generosity and all the money he spent the first time around, the Egyptians, they just took advantage of him. And the, the Malians, Mansa Musa and his caravan, they were kind of naive in the fact that they expected the Egyptians to treat them better and to treat them righteously as being fellow Muslim brothers. And they expected them to behave a certain way. But the Malians, they learned a hard lesson uh, during this period of time. And even centuries later, centuries later, there is still there was Mali literature still discussing the treachery and the dishonesty of the Egyptian people against Mansa Musa. Now, this is not to say that all of the Egyptians were bad. The, the uh, Mamluk Sultan, who was Egyptian, by the way, he was actually uh, still kind and he still helped Mansa Musa. He provided Mansa Musa with uh, lodging and some supplies. He also uh, gave Mansa Musa several Ethiopian and Turkish slaves to replenish those that he had lost while wandering in the desert. And there were also uh, several Arabs who volunteered to return to Mali with Mansa Musa. They may have done this for cultural exchange, maybe to learn more, maybe to uh, to uh, get some sort of position within the government. But whatever the case, Mansa Musa wound up returning to Mali with a much more diverse group than he had left with. And amazingly, despite all the difficulties that Mansa Musa had during this return trip from Hajj, he still found the time to expand his empire. He swung by Gao, which is in current modern-day eastern Mali, and he conquered that city, but he did it peacefully. He just arrived on the doorstep of Gao with his 60,000-member caravan, and the people of Gao capitulated and promised to pay him tribute, and in return, he built a mosque for them. Mansa Musa then went on to Timbuktu, and the same thing there. He uh, took his whole caravan there, and once again, the people of Timbuktu, they also capitulated peacefully, no 
no swords drawn, no blood was spilt, and Mansa Musa, he accepted their tribute and their vassalship, and he rewarded them by expanding the mosque there in uh, Timbuktu. He continued going on his route back to his home city in Mali, and along the way, he captured various cities and towns and villages along the way. And every time, according to the story, every time he captured a new city, he would either build a mosque there or expand whatever existing mosque they already had. So when Mansa Musa finally returned home from his Hajj trip, he began to take steps to make sure that Islam became entrenched in Mali society. He started investing in the development of Timbuktu, and he did this by expanding Timbuktu's religious and commercial activities. So he started sending young Malian boys to North Africa to study Islam. Most of them went to Morocco, which followed Maliki Fiqh or Maliki jurisprudence, just like Mali. Many of these young men, they would settle in Timbuktu and thereby turning the city of Timbuktu into a center of religious learning. Coupled with that, Mansa Musa also focused on expanding Timbuktu's commercial profile, its economic profile. And soon Timbuktu became a powerhouse in both religious learning, commercial activity, and cultural influence. Now, there were uh, both religious and political benefits uh, to our strengthening Islam in Mali. On a political side, Mansa Musa, with him emphasizing Islam and religion in Mali, Mali became a bastion of Maliki fiqh, Maliki jurisprudence. And just to briefly explain, explain, there are, within the Sunni sect of Islam, the Sunni segment of Islam, there are four primary schools of Islamic thought, or school of Islamic jurisprudence, or school of Islamic law. There are four of them, and Malik, one of them was found by a man named Imam Malik, and we generally call it Maliki Fiqh or Maliki Jurisprudence. This Maliki Fiqh is mostly common in West Africa, hence Mali, Morocco, Senegal, and places like that. And so Mali became this center of Maliki thought and Fiqh or religious or religious jurisprudence. The benefit to this for Mansa Musa and for Mali in general was that with everyone practicing the same thing and following the same school of thought, there was very little opportunity for religious rivalry and factions. On top of that, because Mansa Musa had made Hajj, he was now seen as an upstanding religious and spiritual leader. And so it was to his benefit to establish and create a religious elite that would support him. And so, with him having made Hajj, with him sponsoring so many people to go study Islam, with him encouraging the spread of Islam in Mali, he was now being seen as someone who was a supporter of Islam, someone who would promote Islam, someone who would be take on the responsibility of protecting Islam in Mali. And this, of course, helped Mansa Musa politically and make sure that there were very few rivals to him as king or as emperor. And by all accounts, Mansa Musa's uh, investments, they turned out pretty well. Islam became 
very firmly entrenched in Mali society. In fact, the Arab scholar and historian Ibn Battuta, he wrote about the practice of Mali when he visited just a few years after Mansa Musa died. He observed, Ibn Battuta that is, he observed how and wrote about how the Malian children, they memorized the entire Quran and that the mosques were always full for Friday prayers. So this was an indication how much Islam had changed in Mali. In the beginning, when it was with Sundiata, Sundiata was a, was a king, an emperor who didn't fast during Ramadan. He was uh, hardly ever prayed. He practiced witchcraft. To now, where children by the hundreds, maybe even the thousands, were memorizing the Quran, and all of these mosques in Mali were always full on Fridays. In the end, what we can say about Mansa Musa is that he appears to have been a very effective and just and pretty good ruler. His Hajj pilgrimage, it did raise Mali's profile. It brought Mali onto the world stage. He doubled the size of the empire while he was, uh, while he was ruling it. And to the point that when he died, it included about 24 different kingdoms under the rule of the empire of Mali. And by the time Mansa Musa died, Mali was actually larger than Europe. It was actually larger than Europe and the second largest empire in the world at that time, second to only the Mongols. Mansa Musa himself, he died in 1332 and he was still a fairly young person, fairly young man. He was succeeded by his son, Muhammad, who also was young and Muhammad had a young son, but uh, Mansa Muhammad didn't last very long. He died a few years after that. And Mansa Muhammad was succeeded by Mansa Musa's brother named Suleiman. So Mansa Suleiman, he ruled for 24 years. And it was during Mansa Suleiman's reign that Ibn Battuta came through and visited Mali. Uh, according to Ibn Battuta, he wasn't too impressed by Mansa Suleiman. He had a rather, rather negative view of the man. But nonetheless, Mansa Suleiman ruled for 24 years, as we mentioned. And so he seemed to have had nothing, if nothing more, he seemed to have a very long and stable reign. However, after Mansa Suleiman died, Mali went through a very long period of weakness. Uh, Mansa Suleiman died in the year 1360. And by 1390, just 30 years later, Mali's vassals were beginning to rise in rebellion. One of the first vassals to leave were the western provinces along the Senegal River. They broke off and, and uh, formed their own federation. Mali, despite losing much of the Senegal portion of the empire, Mali still maintained control of the region around the Gambia River, which empties out into the Atlantic Ocean. And even to this day, a lot of the cultural information we know about Mali actually comes out of Gambia, not from the Republic, the modern Republic of Mali, particularly the Epic of Sundiata. Much of that information we get and even the tradition of the griot that is mostly carried on in Gambia rather than Mali. In the early 1400s, Timbuktu was invaded and captured by the Mossi people. Uh, Mali managed to recapture it in 1433, but they were really on the decline by this time. As it turns out, Mansa Musa's pilgrimage had some negative outcomes as well. 
Stories of his extravagant gold spending in Cairo, they managed to filter their way up into Europe. And before long, you had Europeans selling south, going to the western coast of Africa, looking for evidence of all of this gold. The Portuguese prince known as Henry the Navigator, he was especially critical in this He had recently defeated the Arab Muslim rulers who had ruled Iberia for a long time. Iberia is the peninsula peninsula that includes Spain and Portugal. So having recently defeated the Arab Muslims, Henry the Navigator was eager to find more Muslims to fight. He was eager to spread Christianity. And most of all, he was eager to get his hands on some of that Arab gold he had heard so much about. But the reality is that the Arab gold that he was looking for was actually African gold from Mali. So the Portuguese, they began raiding up and down the African coast, but they weren't really strong enough to really penetrate deep into Africa just yet. And so seeing that raiding the coast kind of had its limitations because eventually the Africans adjusted and they learned how to defend themselves against the Portuguese raiders. Seeing that this had its limitations, the uh, Portuguese instead began setting up trade depots along the African coast instead. With these trade depots now established and having somewhat peaceful relations with the African monarchs and African rulers, the Portuguese could use this as an opportunity to learn more and venture deeper into Africa. And so in 1455, Henry the Navigator sent an explorer named Catamosto to use these trading depots to to gather intelligence and and learn more about Africa. And sure enough, Catamosto, he went to the trading depot, he stayed there for several years, and he observed and learned that the primary trade that these many of these Africans were doing was actually slavery. They were actually trading in human cargo. He reported this back to Henry the Navigator, along with the fact that the Africans, they really wanted horses. They really valued horses. And so with this information, Henry the Navigator, he set up a network between Portugal and the western coast of Africa, trading slaves for horses back and forth. 37 years later, Christopher Columbus crossed the Atlantic, and a few years after that, Portugal has set up its first colony in the Americas in what is now Brazil. And before long, the Spanish and the Portuguese were shipping African slaves across the Atlantic. Alhamdulillah, I hope you found that interesting and entertaining and beneficial. There's a few things, a few insights I want to discuss about this episode. Number one, we see how Islam became prevalent in West Africa. We see that it was not done by a bunch of conquering Arab armies. Instead, the empire of Mali was mostly responsible for helping with the spread of Islam and even particular Mansa Musa and there are others as well besides him. But we see that Islam came to Africa not at the point of a sword. Actually, the uh, Mali converted willingly and using politics and money and influence, Islam spread from there. But we also see on the downside that Mali's successes also attracted the Europeans. 
And when the Europeans, particularly the Portuguese, when they came through, they picked up the slavery business from the Africans who were already well into it. And this, of course, ultimately led to the transatlantic slave trade. Still, nonetheless, the the transatlantic slave trade was much, much more brutal than African slavery. But it's important to acknowledge the fact that African Muslims were somewhat complicit, at least in establishing or being a part of the system, if nothing else. So we're going to conclude this series on Islam in West Africa with a discussion on the Songhai Empire. That will be in the next episode. In that episode, we will discuss Sunni Ali and Askiya Muhammad, two important figures uh, who are part of the Songhai Empire. And uh, then we'll go on into some more modern events before wrapping up season four. Got a special announcement I wanted to make. I didn't mention that earlier. The Patreon page for the Islamic History Podcast, which is patreon.com slash Islamic History. The page has been upgraded, or I should say updated, with two ongoing series. Let me discuss what they are. The first one is for all Patreon subscribers who subscribe for at least $1 a month and up, all of you will get access to Season 0 and Season 1 of the Islamic History Podcast. These first two seasons, I was just getting my feet wet with the whole Islamic History Podcast thing, and I made a lot of mistakes along the way. I didn't really like the way everything went, but it's there. I didn't want it to be part of the regular podcast feed, so to speak, because the quality wasn't... Not that the quality wasn't bad. I was just, it's just not what I would consider prime material, I guess. I don't know. But it's there for you now. Many people wanted to wanted to get access to these episodes, and I had them before as a full download. But now you can get them either by going to this page and just clicking on it and li- listening to it on the Patreon page, patreon.com slash Islamic History. Or you can, there's a link where you can put it into your podcast player and get it as a podcast instead. So either one of those Either way, either method you prefer to use, you can listen to season zero and season one. And these episodes, new one comes out every Friday. Eventually, we're going to run out because there's only two seasons. And so eventually they'll run out, but still, they'll still be there whenever you're ready to go listen to them. Now, also for Patreon subscribers of $4 and up, they're going to get a little bit more. You will have access to a series I done, the full series I did on the life of Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This was an online class I did back in 2013. The class ultimately ended around the Battle of Badr, but I'm going to continue the series with new episodes going from, uh, continue, continuing on from the Battle of Badr. Now, this series on the life of Prophet Muhammad, I'm I'm pretty sure most of you have probably probably fairly familiar with Prophet Muhammad's life, but this is an in-depth series, okay? This was a, a class I carried on for almost two months, and I have about 15 episodes. Each episode is about an hour long each. It's very, very in-depth. I strongly encourage you to uh, take a gander. There's a free episode, by the way, if you want to go listen to it. Go to patreon.com slash Islamic History. There's a free episode up there. And I'll also include a clip at the end of this show so you can get to listen to it as well. The Sira podcast, because Sira is like Prophet Muhammad. The Sira podcast comes out every Monday. And this is for those who uh, have $4 and up subscription. 
Both series, like I said, both of them can be listened to a podcast. You just take, if you subscribe, become a subscriber. You get the link, put it into your podcast player. And this time, rather than waiting three or four weeks for me to put out another episode, every week, if you're a $4 subscriber, every week you get a new, you get two new episodes. One of one new episode from season zero and season one, and one new episode from the Sierra podcast every single week. And so you don't have to worry so much about me not putting out a show every single week. You will now get this every every single week. You'll have two shows actually. So uh, take a gander, take a listen. Like I said, I'll have a um, a sample here in just a few minutes so you, uh, that you can listen to. So once again, support this. When you do these sort of things, this, of course, supports the Islamic History Podcast. I explained before how much of the information I get, the books I buy, I get it from these um, subscriptions, your subscriptions as a, as a as a Patreon subscriber. I don't want to say donation because it's not really donation. I'm hoping I've given you something of value in return for it. Your sponsorship, um, your your listening to, to the bonus episodes, however you want to call it. Those things help. I was able to buy some very good material for this episode. I got a lot planned going on in the future, inshallah. And no, I'm not able to do this without support. So I thank you for uh, in advance of whatever you can do and for those who are already taking part of it. Speaking of which, let me take some time out to acknowledge those people. And so in no particular order, just going to run through some of their first names. Uh, uh, Sajad Abdullah. Uh, Gleber, Ibrahim, Damon, David, Yafatu, Mo, Craig, Sobia, Ali, Azim, Cyril, Eskia, Masood, Tania, Abdul, Gurdjit, uh, Mohammed, Osama, Mundir, Amir, Faisal, Salah, and Dol. Uh, alhamdulillah, thank you all for your contributions and your support of the show. Couldn't do without you. And so we're going to wrap up this episode now. And uh, here you go. Take a listen to a little bit from the Sira podcast. Until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Hamza ran to where, where the attack was going and began to hit Abu Jah with his bow and, and began to attack him. And so you're hitting him because, or you're attacking him, talking about Abu Jahl attacking Prophet Muhammad Sallam. You're attacking him because of what he believes. I have you know, I believe in what he, I believe in the same thing as well. And Abu Jahl, you know, he respected Hamza because Hamza was a, had a very fierce and strong personality. So he, Abu Jahl, you know, respected him and, you know, right, rightfully so. And also he did, he was a, this statement now, he didn't want to lose someone of Hamza's stature to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu side. So Abu Jahl, he apologized and immediately began to try to, to smooth things over with Hamza. But Hamza already said it now. The cat was out the bag. So at first, Hamza has said this out of, in the heat of anger and, you know, out of, um, you know, just out of impulse, you know, because he saw his cousin and his relation being harmed. And so he has said initially, you know, his his initial statement of belief was more or less just to get at Abu Jal and get Abu Jal off his cousin and get back at him. So he had to really ponder about it for a few for a little while afterwards if he knew what he was getting into. He wasn't quite sure if he was ready for this or if he really did, but if he really did believe. But Allah still, you know, confirmed faith in his heart and Hamza soon a few days later became his faith became sincere and he became a sincere follower and he wound up making the Hijrah of Prophet Muhammad and wound up becoming martyred in the Battle of Ahud, which will come up later inshallah. So definitely his faith was sincere. But yes, initially he because he had taken 
he had done this impulsively and out of anger, what he, what he saw Abu Jahl doing to Prophet Muhammad So Hamza became a very strong ally in the, in the ranks of the Muslims. But even greater than that was the conversion, and perhaps the most popular conversion of all, the conversion of Omar ibn al-Khattab. He was roughly probably about the 40th person to accept Islam. And this conversion of Omar ibn al-Khattab really elevated the Muslims, uh, their, their stature to, a, to another level when Omar ibn Khattab joined the Muslims uh, and he converted. Now at first, Omar ibn Khattab was, amongst all the other pagans, he was, you know, persecuting those people from his monks, his family who became Muslim, or the slaves who were under his control who became Muslim. He was right along with him. He wasn't as bad as attacking the prophet in the precincts of the Kaaba. He wasn't that bad, but the people within his own household, within, within his family, or who, who were under control of his family, yeah, he did persecute them and beat those people who, who became Muslim. There's a report that he had a slave, a slave girl who became Muslim, and he would beat her and beat her and beat her. He only stopped because, as he said, he, only, he was only stopping, not because he took pity on her. He told her this. I'm not stopping because I take pity on you, but because I'm just too tired to beat you anymore. And so he stopped only because of that. So he was involved with the persecution also. But at the same time, he was upset about the, the discord and the... the uh, the tear in the tears and the rips in the family fabric that was happening in Mecca at the time. He was upset about the families fighting against each other and people turning out their own people from the family. And he was really upset about the all the problems that were happening, people leaving Mecca and moving to Abyssinia and all these sort of problems that were going on in Mecca. And he using his you know his logic, he brought it all back down to the source of all this. The source of all these problems was Muhammad. He brought it all back to Muhammad, said this is all his fault, this is all him coming up with all these problems. And so the best way to stop all this is to just get rid of Prophet Muhammad Wasallam. And this was his plan. And the Quraysh encouraged him to go ahead and just end this whole thing. The Quraysh were pretty much too, af- most of the other Quraysh were too afraid to kill Prophet Muhammad Wasallam because they didn't want his um, family to, re- to exact retribution against them. But Omar was the type who didn't really care about that sort of thing. Omar, as you'll see, we'll talk about his character in the, in the, later on. His character was similar to Hamza's. Uh, you know, he was not one to back down from a challenge or from a fight. He was very wise now. He wasn't a fool, but he was not one to back down from a fight whatsoever. So, according to the most popular story of his conversion, he took a sword and he went marching through Mecca to go to Prophet Muhammad and kill him and end this whole mess once and for all. As he was going along the way, uh, one of the companions who had become Muslim, whom he didn't know had become Muslim, stopped and asked him, where are you going with your sword, Omar? Because Omar was walking rather, you know, determinedly, and he had a sword in his hand. And if you saw somebody walking down the street right now with a gun in their hand, you asked, uh, man, what are you doing with that gun? Or, unless you ran away, but if you knew the person, you asked, what are you doing with that gun? So the same thing, asking, what are you doing with that, with that sword, Omar? I'm going to say he's going to go and kill Prophet Muhammad and or he didn't call him Prophet Muhammad, but he said, I'm going to kill Muhammad in this fitna, in, this, in these trials that are happening in Mecca. He said, well, before you go and attack someone else's family, maybe you should go straighten out what's happening in your own household. And he told him that his sister, Fatima ibn al-Khattab, no relation to, no relation to Fatima ibn Muhammad, not the daughter of Prophet Muhammad but um, 
uh, Omar's sister, his name, her name was just Fatima ibn Khattab. She had become Muslim also, and she had married another Muslim named Sa'id ibn Zaid. So he said, why don't you go take care of your own family rather than before you go ahead and try and straighten someone else's family first? And when Omar heard this, that his own sister had become Muslim. Remember, many people didn't know. Many people were still keeping their conversion secret. So everybody didn't know who was open and all. And there were many people were still praying or doing their worship at Dada al-Qam. So many people who hid their conversion for, you know, for various reasons. So when Omar heard this, he was really hot and mad. And he went straight to his sister's house. And he went there and he opened the door. And he saw her, his sister and her husband uh, sitting there reading Quran. And even though he didn't know what the Quran was, he, you know, the Quran has a unique, has a unique sound. When he heard them reciting the Quran, he just went off on them, and he began to beat them and hit them and just pummel them. And he, Omar was reported to be a pretty big man. And you know, as people, as time goes on, people tend to get taller. So men, people of our time are generally taller than people say 100, 200, 300 years ago, and going on back. The, you know, as nutrition gets better, humanity generally typically typically gets bigger and, of course, sometimes even wider as well. So, but Omar, however, was reported to be over six feet tall, which was tall for people, for, for an Arab at that time. And so, he was a pretty big guy and very sturdy, very strong. He was very young as, as compared to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu He's about, I'm thinking, somewhere between 20 to 15 years younger than Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu So, if Prophet Muhammad was around his late 40s at this time, Omar was probably in his late 20s. So when he saw this, what was happening, I mean, sorry, when he saw his, uh, his sister and, her, and his brother-in-law reading the Quran, he began to pummel them and beat them. And, you know, they couldn't do anything about it. They just had to sit there and, and, and take their licks until his sister just got fed up and said, you're hitting us because of what we believe, then go ahead and kill us. And, she, and when she said this to him, that kind of shook him. Out of his out of his rage, and it made him calm down, and he realized what he was doing. He's, you know, it's like you imagine everyone gets mad at times, and when that temporary moment of madness or anger—I won't say madness, but madness indicates indicates insanity—but that madness is more or less rage or or being furious and anger. When that anger's you know, when it flicked off and it subsided, he looked at the carnage he had caused, his, his sister and his brother-in-law laying down in front of his feet, bloody and bruised and everything. It it kind of shocked him. It was like, my God, I can't believe I did this. And it softened his heart and he felt both ashamed and remorseful for what he had just done. And so he asked his sister to, he asked his sister to read what she was reading because she was reading from strips, you know, some of the Quran written on paper. He asked to to read what she was reading, but she refused to let him read until he had cleansed himself. So he went and and um, made wudu at the time. Uh, don't believe all the rules of wudu were, were were revealed at the time. So most likely he probably just did something similar to like a ghusl as of right now, a full bath. He came back and he read Surah Tawha. And we're going to read that right now. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Tawha. ما أنزلنا عليك القرآن لتشقى إلا تذكرة لمن يخشى تنزيلا ممن خلق الأرض والسماوات العلى الرحمن على العرش استوى. Translation of that is Toha. 
have we not sent down to you the Qur'an that you be distressed? But only, we have not sent down to you the Qur'an that you are to be distressed, but only as a reminder for those who fear, fear Allah that is, a revelation from he who created the earth and the highest heavens, the most merciful above the throne established. When Omar read these verses that convinced him that Islam was the truth, these verses touched his heart and he, you know, immediately at that, at that point in time, wanted to become Muslim. And so, still had a sword in hand. He left his sister's house and went hurrying towards Prophet Muhammad's house. Now, when Prophet Muhammad heard that Omar was on his way with a sword. He thought Omar was coming to his house with a sword for the previous reason, which was to kill him, not to take, you know, to become Muslim. So, Prophet Muhammad opened the door to meet him and grabbed him by the collar and said, and when he came to the door, that is, grabbed Omar by the by the collar of his shirt and said, What have you come here for, Omar? What are you here for? And Omar said, I came here to take Shahada or to bear witness that you are the Messenger of Allah. And Omar took Shahada and became Muslim. And that was a turning point for for both the Muslims and the Quraysh. For the Muslims, a turning point in that now with Omar, he gave the Muslims courage now that he was there.